Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I'm coming to you live from Macquarie University in sunny Sydney, Australia. I'm here today speaking with Roger Gillis. He's the director of the Honors College and a writing professor at Grand Valley State University. And we're here to talk about his absolutely excellent book, Women on the Move, The Forgotten Era of Women's Bicycle Racing, out from University of Nebraska Press. Roger, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Keith. I'm really happy to be here. I have to say, um, even growing up in the area where most of the the action in this book takes place, this uh, really is a forgotten history. This is something I knew nothing about, and it was such a a pleasure to read, a kind of nostalgic pleasure for me personally. Um, but I, I'm curious, how did you develop this project? Because this really is, in some ways, I think, a very forgotten history. Well, you're certainly not alone in not knowing about it. And uh, I was one of those people that didn't know about it, and so was my wife. But in about 2005 or six, she was in a women's room in Grand Rapids at a pizza shop. And she saw on the wall a postcard from the early 1900s in Grand Rapids here where I live. And it was an advertisement essentially for a hotel. And it was saying that in 1897, Tilly the Terrible Swede had come to town and done a bicycling exhibition. And Sue, my wife, her name is Sue Stoffaker, is a children's book author. And she write some picture books about strong women. And so she was intrigued by the fact that there was this postcard about a bicycle racer from the 1890s. And so she decided to look into Tilly and discovered that she was Tilly Anderson and that she had won a bunch of races in the 1890s and ended up uh, writing a picture book for uh, Random House, uh, which was her publisher then. And um, in the course of doing the research for that book, she was contacted by a woman from Kansas uh, her name is Alice Repke, who is uh, Tilly Anderson's grandniece. And Alice told Sue, I've been working basically my whole adult life to try to bring back the memory of these women raisers, and I'm just delighted that you're writing this book. And Alice ended up providing some images, some photographs that the illustrator for the book was able to integrate into the book. It's a picture book, so it's, you know, 32 pages, not very much text. And so it was just a brief telling of the story. She published that book in 2011. And in the course of, of our trying to kind of celebrate the publication of the book, uh, my wife got the bright idea uh, that we would ride our bicycles from Grand Rapids down to Chicago, which is where Tilly Anderson is from. And as you may know, that's about well, it's about 170 miles on the highway, but if you ride your bicycle and follow the roads, it's about 250 miles. <laughs> and we we uh, took a five-day trip and stopped at schools along the way. And Sue, so we were on our bicycles. We had a couple friends with us, and we uh, stopped at schools, and Sue told the kids at the schools about Tilly Anderson and the bicycle racers. 
anyway, we got to Chicago and we met Alice Repke and her husband um, and spent the weekend with them. And in the course of that weekend, Alice was really pressing Sue, who's a pretty well-published writer, to write a full biography of Tilly Anderson. And Sue really wasn't that interested in it. I'm a writing professor, and you know all of my publications up to now have been focused on writing program administration of all things, so that's kind of what my specialty is. And I had a sabbatical coming up. And I just found myself volunteering for the project. And really, I had no business doing it in some ways. I've been a lifelong sports fan, and I've actually taught a course at Grand Valley called Writing and Sports, which is a, really a reading course, a general education course. And we focus on how sports writing has influenced, been influenced by, but also influenced our culture. And so I had some background, but <clears throat> mainly just interest. So I said, sure, I'd like to do that. So I got into the project, and that's how it started. I, that I you you and you include a lot of that detail, though not all of it, in your in your in your first chapter, and it just kind of grabbed me right right away. Um, this this intensely kind of midwestern and local, and in such a such a chance uh, discovery. Uh, did when you were thinking about this book, did you think about it as a a book of recovery? Like here was this great story that nobody knew about, but we should know about. What was the, did you have a, a kind of greater goal? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I, first of all, I couldn't figure out how to start the book. You know, it took me a long time to decide to do the most obvious thing, which is to tell the story about how I got into it. And that's how I, that's the introduction of the book. And I think, by choosing that kind of introduction, I was basically saying to my readers, we're in the same boat. I didn't know anything about this. I was a sports fan, but I didn't know all that much about bicycling as a sport. Um, I'm interested in, in history and sports history. But other than that, I don't know anything about this. So let's, let's explore it together. Let me tell you how I got into it. And then let me start from the beginning and try to tell the story. And so I, I'll put it this way. I have not, I have not met a single person who had more than, and these are, I'm talking about sports historians that I've met at conferences who had more than a passing awareness of these women's exploits in the 1890s. Um, some of the, some of the authors who have published, you know, histories of bicycle racing and sports history have said, Oh yeah, I know they, they traveled around the Midwest. Yeah. I think they were pretty popular too, weren't they? But in terms of, details about the women's activities and what they accomplished. I mean, there was just nothing out there. So it's definitely a book of recovery. And, you know, my subtitle is The Forgotten Era of Women's Bicycle Racing. And I think there's just no question that it's a forgotten era. And obviously my, I shouldn't say obviously, but my goal here is to get them back in the conversation. And I don't think I have the final word. I think I have the first word. And I'm really just trying to say, if you're a sports historian or, or a cycling historian, somebody really should look into this in, in all its detail and try to re, really place these women in, in, in their proper place in sports history. It's certainly gotten me thinking about some connections uh, as a French historian and interested in the, in, in the same time period in some ways, thinking about these transatlantic connections. But we'll, we'll, come, we'll come back to that. Uh, okay. So I I I, uh, I hope you can uh, for our readers who don't know much about 
bicycle racing in the 1890s, let alone women's uh, bicycle racing. I hope you can tell us a little bit about um, how it started. So why does women's bicycle racing emerge kind of at this time? What's particularly different about cycling? And maybe just give us some of this broad context. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, it's kind of surprising or even shocking that it took until really the 1860s or 70s for human beings to develop the bicycle. I mean, it was a, basically there was a scooter in the 1830s and, and, it, and then in the 18, late 1870s, what we think of as the high wheel or the penny farthing bicycle was developed. And that's what most people think of as the 18, uh, you know, the 19th century bicycle. Um, that was uh, an unwieldy contraption. It was not easy to get on. It was not easy to get off. It was somewhat dangerous. People were sitting four or five feet high. It was not real fast. Um, it was just not a great bicycle, but it was it was an interesting bicycle. And and people, of course, started riding it. And as soon as they started riding any kind of machine like that, they thought, well, let's race. So they started to develop races in the 1880s, both in Europe and in United States. And because of that, the awkwardness, I guess, of riding that high wheel, the races really were more either exhibitions of the bicycle or an endurance contest. And the bicycle community adopted what had started as walking races, which were called six-day races. These walking races and, and, and then the bicycle races would start at midnight on Monday morning uh, and then they would end either at midnight or at 10 p.m. on Saturday. So they were trying to avoid uh, racing on a sa- on a Sunday. So it all, you know, it was 144 hours, six days, and they would just go as far as they possibly could in those six days. And this was primarily a men's sport in the 1880s, but women started to do it too. And um, it was popular as an as a novelty or as an exhibition in terms of the women most of the novelty was just watching women do something as dangerous and athletic as getting on one of these high wheel bicycles and and going around a track. So this was not a popular endeavor for women. So it was just a novelty and and exciting to see women on this bicycle. So, I mean, there's a whole sport there and there's a lot to be said about it. In fact, one of my uh, new colleagues in the world of uh, bicycle history, Ann Hall has written a book, uh, called uh, Muscle on Wheels, and it's about the women racers of the 1880s, and it's worth checking out. Um, my contention is that it really took the development of the what they called the safety bicycle, which was the modern bicycle in the early 1890s, and the developments essentially were that uh, Dunlap and others developed rubber so that you could have pneumatic tires pump up air into them, and which made them much better tires. Um, they lowered the they used the chain-driven gearing system so that they could have both wheels the same size so they're no longer bound by the size of the wheel to determine how far a revolution of the pedals would take. Um, and they, um, uh, with a lower amount, it was just much easier to pedal. So these things went much faster. So that started in the 1890s, and this is what caused what we call the bicycle boom or the bicycle craze. And millions of people in the United States and in Europe uh, bicycles it was popular in Australia as well, um, and it was uh, just a very popular form of transportation, entertainment, recreation. And again, people thought, "Well, let's race these things." And 
it was very natural for them to adopt that six day format for most of the races. And they also had field events where they would try short sprints and that kind of thing. But, um, it was in 1895 when uh, a couple of promoters thought, let's adopt this six day race format for women. And they started to put together some races and they started off on very small tracks, uh, partly because they, uh, much of the development of the racing really was built on the notion that women were the weaker sex and probably couldn't handle the same kind of exertion levels as men. So instead of having the women race 24 hours a day, they thought, let's limit it to two or three hours a day because they're women. Um, and instead of having women race on tracks of four laps to a mile or quarter mile tracks, they thought, let's make a small track because they're women. And we'll, and they, so they built tracks that were 14, 16, 18 laps per mile, very small tracks. Um, and kind of the interesting result of the development of that style race was that because they were racing a shorter amount of time per day, and because they were racing on these small tracks that forced them to bank the tracks all the way around. Otherwise, it was impossible to go around a track that was so small. The women ended up racing really fast. They, they pretty much could maintain a near sprint for the entire time they raced. Whereas the men continued to do these endurance races of 24 hours on the track. Um, and so those races were slow. And the men were averaging over the week-long race, 12 to 15 miles per hour, whereas the women quickly started to average 20, 22, 23 miles an hour. So it was a faster event. Um, anyway, these women, these races were um, put on in cities all across the United States, primarily in the Midwest. And what they would do was go from one city to another. They would build a quick track, sometimes inside of a theater, sometimes inside of an auditorium, sometimes in a baseball field. Uh, wherever they could find a, tra- a space to build a track with stands, and they would build a track, uh, race on it for the week. It would be a big sensation in the town. They would tear down the track, and they'd go to another town. And, and they were really barnstorming across the country from about 1895 until 1902. So for seven years, it was a very popular sport. I'm I'm uh, I'm wondering if can you tell us a little bit about um, this as a as a Midwest story? Why did it emerge uh, seemingly in the Midwest, or at least the story of these uh, women? And I want to get to them in one second. But um, you you hint at other parts of the book that there was uh, and maybe in a smaller Eastern circuit, but this Western circuit that emerges kind of from Ohio and. Uh, in Chicago and Milwaukee and Minneapolis, why does this is this part of the country maybe particular to the story and in particular to this birth? Well, it's a good question. I don't know if I have a full answer to that, but I will say that um, as I explained in the book, there was an Eastern Circuit, a New York-based kind of promotion of women's racing that started in 1895, and simultaneously there was one that was starting out in Minneapolis. Uh, by different promoters. And so they both basically got the same idea, which was not that shocking of an idea, which is to, hey, let's try women on these bicycles. Um, I think the Eastern people um, made a series of bad calculations in terms of the way to manage those races and put them on. And they ended up really 
making them just the same as the 1880s races, which was let's make it a novelty. Let's just kind of show off women on a bicycle as opposed to treating it like a serious sport. Whereas um, the promoters in Minnesota, for whatever reason, um, just had the inclination to make it a better race, a better sport. So it really caught on there, number one. And then I guess number two is that, and it may just be coincidental, but most of the best women racers that emerged during the, that time came from either Minneapolis or from Chicago. Um, or maybe from Cleveland, you know, really those three cities produced uh, probably 10 or 12 of the top 15 women's racers of that period. Um, so in, a, in another way to look at it, perhaps, is that just as today, the East Coast is filled with possibilities and entertainment and big city uh, occurrences, whereas in Columbus and in Detroit and in Grand Rapids and in Minneapolis and Milwaukee, um, they were looking for things to do. And it was an entertainment that uh, appealed to people. So uh, they jumped at it. And uh, so, you know, I'm not quite sure why it was so popular, but my research indicates that uh, the vast majority of the races, probably 75 or 80 percent of the races happened between Kansas City, which is kind of in the middle of the current United States, and and Pittsburgh, you know, which is kind of the edge of the Midwest. So it's definitely a Midwest phenomenon. Yeah, for for readers who are familiar from Ohio, like I am, um, just reading Zanesville, Lima, I mean, all these small Ohio towns, and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe yeah. these women were going to Lima in 1895. I can't. What would that have been like? <laughs> um, and another but kind it, of uh, dimension to this is that the, you know, the, the newspapers of that era, of course, were local newspapers. There were hundreds and hundreds of local newspapers, and so even though this was a national phenomenon, it was really a local sport. It, it was a national sport, but it was a local phenomenon. So, um, they every time they went to a new city, and and they they went to places like Columbus and Cleveland year after year, but places like Lima and and Zanesville, they would appear. It was a brand new sport. And so these promoters got pretty good at, at introducing the sport to a new crowd. Uh, the women had never been seen before. Maybe, maybe they've heard of them, but they'd never seen them before. So come on out and see these women. And then they would introduce all their records and then get the race going. And, um, so it was an interesting phenomenon and in how the women could circle back around to the big cities and get new people to come. And then they could also stretch themselves into the smaller towns and become a week-long, uh, you know, highlight for the city in the summer. So it was um, just, it's a, it's, in some ways, it was tailor-made for the emerging urban landscape of the late 1800s. Now, I, I think it's a good time to introduce some, some of these women. The, the, the main figure in, in your book, in some ways, and, and you've already mentioned her, is, is uh, Tilly the Terrible Swede, but there's a whole a whole uh, cast of, of female cyclists, the big big five. So I'm wondering if you can kind of introduce them um, and so that our, our readers know a little bit and listeners know a little bit more about who these women were. Sure. So I guess I'll say just generally, um, these were primarily immigrants and they were primarily from working class families. Um, 
I consider them to be the first great women athletes in America. I'm not quite sure about Australia and Europe, but I think it may be the case there too. Um, they were breaking ground physically by becoming professional athletes, and we can talk more about how well they were paid. Um, but they were breaking ground physically by becoming professional athletes, but they were not really concerned with the social mores of the time. They, they didn't consider themselves to be um, upsetting any kind of social niceties or traditions because they were working class women who saw this as a great way to make some money. Um, so Midwestern immigrant working class women. Um, you've mentioned Tilly Anderson. She was born in Sweden and she came over to Chicago as a teenager and she saw men racing and thought, and she, and of course she was experiencing the bicycle craze at the time. So she picked up the sport. Clearly she was a strong person, athletically inclined and competitive. And she became by far the most successful of the women racers. And I attribute that to her strength, her competitive nature, and also the fact that she was lucky enough to have a boyfriend and later husband who was himself a bicycle racer and who really helped her become a, a professional athlete in the sense of training. So Tilly trained year-round. She, she worked out with weights. She rode her bicycle indoors and out all year long and really lived the life in the 1890s of a professional athlete. So she was a very good racer, um, clearly the number one racer of that era. Um, but there were also some, a few women uh, who made the transition from the old high wheel days of the late 1880s and early 1890s to the safety era days, which began in 1895. Uh, there was Helen Baldwin and May Allen, both from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and who um, were small in stature, but but um, pretty young women who the crowd really enjoyed seeing, and they would often become the third or fourth or fifth place finishers in a race, but were always big crowd favorites. Um, the and Frankie Nelson, I should say, uh, made the transition from the old high wheels to the new, and she was the winner of the first. Um, big race in New York City for women, and the last one too, actually, because it was deemed a failure. Uh, Frankie Nelson is the is the most commonly named woman racer from that era in encyclopedia articles and other articles before my book. Uh, so she was the because she raced in Madison Square Garden in New York City, she was well known. Um, she was from Cincinnati and uh, really didn't do much in the in the new era, but she had a pretty good career in the old era. Um, from Minneapolis uh, came two really interesting young racers. One is Dottie Farnsworth, who was probably the one of the only one or two women from the group that was not strictly working class. She came from a fairly well-to-do family and, in fact, had graduated from a kind of a finishing school and studied theater and dance. And, um, at least in, in my telling, she takes on the personality, really, of an entertainer, and she was... Uh, always playing to the crowds, and she was a, a, another pretty young woman who um, understood how to become the most popular racer in the race, and that was something. Um, and the promoters loved her because she did appeal to the big crowds. Um, I also call her the 
kind of uh, bridesmaid of the era in that she finished, according to my records anyway, that I've been able to collect, she finished second more often than any other person that raced. So there was something about her. She was a good racer and she would often win the heats. Like on Tuesday, she would win. On Wednesday, she would win. But when it came time to uh, finish the race on Saturday, she somehow always fell short. Um, also from Minneapolis was a young racer named Maddie Christopher, who um, was known as the White Cyclone. She started racing actually in um, like uh, county fairs, going against horses or going against ice skaters during the winter. So they would just kind of put her on a bicycle and race her against whoever uh, was up for the race. Um, she was the first of the young racers to challenge the old high wheel racers who I think were more used to um, kind of pacing themselves around the track and not worrying too much about sprinting all that often. And they would really focus on the sprinting at the end. Well, Maddie came along and she was, I think, 22 or 23 years old and didn't know any better. And she just thought, I'm going to go as fast as I can the whole time. And, and she upped the level of competition in the sport by doing that because everybody else had to keep up with it. So that was Maddie. And I guess um, a couple of others worth mentioning is uh, really Tilly's chief rival, also from Chicago, same age as Tilly. This uh, is my favorite. <laughs> yeah, an immigrant from Germany. Her name is Lizzie Glaw. Um, I could find almost nothing about her personally. I think she was a very private person. She, I think she ended up dying in 1902. And I say I think because I, I'm, I'm, I'm just inferring that really from the death records I could find. Um, but Lizzie was a German ex uh, immigrant very serious person, um, really kind of dour. I mean, she fit all the stereotypes that we have of, of German people. Um, and uh, certainly they played that up in the newspapers too. So all these women were known by the country they came from. Um, but Lizzie was um, in it for the money. She was very competitive. If she fell too far behind in a race, she would often just quit. If she thought that the race was unfairly refereed or something, she would just quit. If she didn't feel right, if her stomach was bad or whatever, at the, at the start of the race, she would say, I'm not going to race this time. I'll, I'll catch you in the next city. Often disappointing the crowds who were expecting a, a, a head-to-head race between her and Tilly. Um, so she was just in it for what she got out of it, which was to uh, make a good amount of money. And she said so to reporters who would ask her questions. Most of the other women understood, hey, this is partly entertainment. And we have to say the right things, just like athletes do today. Um, but Lizzie basically just said... Uh, I'm, I'm doing this for the money, and it's a pretty good living, so leave me alone. <laughs> um, and then the last one I mentioned, and I'm sure you were interested in her as well, is our yes. uh, woman who came from France, um, and she was just named, known by a single name, Lisette. I think her full name was uh, Amélie Legault. And uh, she was actually a successful racer over in Europe and the only one really that made the transition from European racing over to American racing. Um, I don't know as much about European racing, but I, my understanding is that it was more of a controlled event, a more of a paced event. So they would have six-day races and long races, but they would, um, they would pace them with a, a rider out front, and often they would uh, even do it without competition between the women. So it was just um, however long you were on the track, they would time you, and then at the end of the week, they would decide who was able to go fastest. When she came over to America in 1898, after 
the women's six-day racing in America had gotten quite popular. She was really um, previewed and forecast in the newspapers as the, a great sensation, the European champion, probably much better than all the American racers. And so she came with a splash. And being French, she was also um, appealing to the uh, reporters, and she was good for a quotation. And so she was uh, really the quickly became the most popular draw in the women's sport in late 1898 and through 1899. Um, she was a very good racer, but she had trouble with the competitive nature of the other women. So um, I didn't mention this before, but this this sport could get pretty rough. So they were racing on a small track, five or six women at a time, elbowing, uh, pulling on the back of a bicycle seat, um, pushing people up the track so they would go over the edge. These things were all done. And they were uh, competing as best they could to stay on the track and, and win the race. So it was, I call it at one point, uh, roller derby on bicycles. And so it was a rough competitive sport uh, raced by rough working class women. And Lizette had a little trouble with that, although she was game. And she, I think she did a really good job and was a, a real nice addition to the sport. Yeah, I, I think... Um... You know, it's something you do a great job of emphasizing in the book, which is kind of evoking the nature of these races where sometimes the women are circling the track in just a matter of, you know, 10, 15 seconds at speeds in the 30 miles an hour. And these are banked tracks. So they're really whipping around at quite a speed. And if one of the floorboards isn't perfect or, um, you know, it, it, sometimes it had rained or <laughs> the, the accidents could be quite um, could be quite dramatic, but that was part of the appeal, wasn't it? I mean, uh, this was a business, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there really hardly a two or three hour heat would go by without some kind of an accident. It, they were very common. Um, sometimes they were worse than others. Um, sometimes they were even caused by boys along the side of the track, throwing tacks out on the track to see if they could just cause some trouble. So it was not uncommon to have some kind of an accident. Um, the women would certainly get strawberries and scrape their uh, knees and elbows. Sometimes they would get deep bruises. Sometimes they get gashes when they got tangled up with someone else's uh, pedals or handlebars. Um, sometimes it was two or three women going down in a heap. Uh, sometimes, as I said, people would go over the banked edge into the crowd. Um, but the amazing thing, and this is what brought people back again and again, is that uh, these women during the height of the Victorian era would crash to the boards, bleed from their head, and get up and get back on the bicycle and keep on racing. And the crowd just loved that. And it was, it was, uh, you know, I'm not a social historian, but I, I'm quite confident that this was challenging the sensibilities of that era in ways that had never been challenged before. And I mean, really, in the 20th century, women were again and again and again trying to prove themselves as serious athletes and having a hard time being taken seriously as athletes. And I think one of the reasons this story is so important to be told is that this was happening in the 1890s. And this, there was a round in our culture, a whole round of, um, of, the, of that proving ground. And so women were trying to prove themselves in that way. And uh, so the appeal of the race was certainly that there was some danger uh, it was a dizzying kind of spectacle because they were traveling around, like you say, eight, 10 seconds for a lap. 
on this deeply banked track. So a lot of people couldn't figure out how they could stay on that bicycle at that angle because they would, you know, they would lean into the turns, so they would be almost, you know, 90 degrees to the to the ground um, as they were going around. And, um, and I should mention too uh, that these women were wearing um, wool jerseys and wool tights that left little to the imagination in terms of the shape of their body. And uh, that was also a, a kind of welcome and unusual spectacle for most of the people in the crowd. So they um, were w- watching the women. They were watching the women race. They were watching the women crash. And they were also watching a great race. Yeah, I want to I want to really highlight that in your book, um, which is to say so often as 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 uh, scholars working in sports studies or things like that, we were faced with this dilemma of the kind of ontological sport. Hey, this is cycling and and maybe w- women's cycling is just not quite as good as men's cycling because they're not going at quite the same speed or something like that. But this book really shows, oh no, sport is a, is a business. It's a product that's put together. And actually this product was better. People liked it more and women were competing at faster speeds and, and um, you know, selling more tickets. And it was because of kind of all these factors that you, you bring together the the amazing advertising, the better rules, um, the kind of sex appeal of all this, it was a really successful uh, product at the time um, that it was being produced. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit more. Uh, You say you're not a social historian, but you do a lot of social history. I would say you're a social historian, whether you like it or not. (laughs) Um, We're a big tent. (laughs) Uh, But I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how this worked as a business. Um, Who who was organizing it? How did the money work? Why, Why did people come? to the, these events, who are the spectators, uh, and, and definitely dig into the, that to, to dress for it for us as well. Um, so I, I think that was one of the most fascinating parts of the book when you're talking about this, this, uh, play between sexuality and athleticism as well. Right. So a couple of things there. One is that, <clears throat> so first of all, it, this is all rooted in the fact that the bicycle craze was occurring all across the, the Europe and the United States. So regular people were buying bicycles and it was very natural for them to want to see people who were expert at that, at that machine, at that bicycle. So in that way, it's a lot like the development of car racing in the 20th century where everybody was driving a car and it was fun to go out on a Saturday and see people who made a living at driving a car. So it was a popular sport for that reason to begin with. Um, and then because of those reasons that I cited, I think the women's sport really developed as a unique sport. It was different from the men's. So it developed its own following and its own reason. You know, people had a different reason to go to the women's races than they had to go to the men's races. Um, because of the bicycle craze, there were dozens and dozens of bicycle manufacturers that were just making money hand over fist in 1893, 1894, 1895, and 1896, the height of the bicycle craze. And again, you can make the analogy to automobiles because there were different brands and they were competing for the market of the, of the larger population. So initially, it was the bicycle manufacturers who said, this is going to be great for our business. So we want to promote these sports, these, these races as best we can. 
And so Tilly, for example, wrote a thistle who, that was a manufacturer from Chicago. Uh, Lizzie Glaw wrote a Cleveland from Cleveland, Ohio, a bicycle manufacturer there. So each of the women were riding bicycles that they sponsored. And at first, anyway, the bicycle manufacturers were so flush that they would not only provide the prize money for the event, but they would also pay the women a salary uh, to draw them to the race. So Tilly, for example, and most of the other ones I mentioned were the top racers. So the, the manufacturers paid them a salary to draw them over to Cleveland to race in a race. Um, so there was a lot of money floating around. And uh, I think I say at one point that in the mid-1890s, a typical working-class family in the United States would take home about $600 in a year. That was a, you know, basically a living wage. Um, and in the very first races of 1896, when Tilly started to race, first prize could be as high as 200 or $250 for her. And she was doubling that with her salary. So she was making a lot of money. And I think um, one woman uh, who was really a second tier racer um, quotes her average salary in a year as being in the neighborhood of three or four thousand dollars. And in Tilly's family records, they talk about her making five, six or seven thousand dollars in a year. So they were making a lot of money. And the, the bicycle manufacturers really kept that sport afloat through 1897. And then in 1898, the bicycle craze started to fade. Uh, people had bicycles, number one, so they weren't buying as many. Um, there became a kind of used bicycle market for the people who hadn't got a bicycle in the first round. And, you know, the novelty wore off, too, because in 1893 and four and five, it was just, you know, everybody was riding bicycles. Um, and then it became more, well, I ride my bicycle to work because it's convenient or like I, I go out on Saturdays for exercise, but I don't ride it every day. So it just became, you know, just faded. So um, the bicycle manufacturers started to consolidate, go out of business. Now, instead of dozens and dozens and dozens of bicycle manufacturers, there were five or six bicycle manufacturers in the United States and they didn't, they weren't competing in the same ways. So they started to withdraw their support of the sport for both men and women. And, um, so it became about gate receipts, you know, and whereas before the gate receipts were basically going to the promoters, so they were making money hand over fist, uh, now the gate receipts had to be split between the promoters and the racers. So by 1898, 99, and 1900, uh, there just wasn't as much money being made. Um, that didn't mean that people didn't enjoy going. It just meant that there were smaller crowds and the ticket prices were often a little cheaper to get bigger crowds and the women weren't making quite as much money. So people like Lizzie Glaw, for example, started to lose interest. <laughs> you know, she thought, well, I'm not going to do all this for, you know, $50 because I've been doing this for $200. I'd much rather make 200 So um, it changed a little bit. But also going back to this idea of the, the uniqueness of the women's sport versus the men's, um, for, for reasons I can't quite figure out, um, the men just never caught on to the idea of shortening their races. So they just kept up with this 24-hour, around-the-clock, six-day race format uh, right through the end of the uh, decade or century. And um, at one point, I think one of the chapters of the book, I just like put side-by-side -side two races in Chicago in the same hall, Tattersall's Hall, um, in Chicago in 1897 or 8. One 
one week it was the men, and then two weeks later the women raced. And the men's race was um, a, a kind of a boring, laborious affair where the winner ended up winning by, you know, a, a hundred laps or something. I mean, it was, they raced all week long, so there was just no contest. And also, because they're going 24 hours a day, I mean, they did sleep, they did take breaks, but it was completely up to them when they did that. Um, you know, you could go, if you dropped into the arena to watch for a little while, there might be five of the 10 racers on the track at that point. You'd have to look up at the scorecard to see who was ahead. and The leader might not even be on the track. And so it just wasn't a great spectator sport. And and to top things off, the, the men, um, because it was such an endurance race, were being administered all manner of drugs that the doctors could think of to give to them, um, stimulants of every kind, from morphine to heroin to cocaine and cola nuts and uh, atrophia and strychnine and, you know, everything they could think of they were putting into these men's bodies. And the men were uh, basically haggard zombies uh, looping around the track time after time after time after time. And so that was one race. And by the end of the race, I mean, the, the, the headline I think I quoted was the land of Nod. You know, it was just a, it was a bore to watch. And also it made people think, I think some of the sports writers said, this is even worse. It's a worse spectacle than boxing because at least boxing is only has three minute rounds and people don't get too beat up. <laughs> Whereas these people were really getting uh, haggard and, and scary looking by the time they got to the fourth or fifth day. So that's the men's races. And then the women, two weeks later, uh, a field of six or eight women racing on the track. Um, it was the, in this case, it was the same track, uh, 10 mile, 10 lap per mile track. Um, and this time it was uh, 90 minutes a night. So it was an 18 hour race for the week, 90 minutes a night, starting on Monday. Everybody's zooming around the track together, accidents, music pounding women in shorts and um, 10,000 people packing this arena and uh, the sports writers and the fans all said this, this is fantastic. And it was by far the more popular of the two events. The other, um, the other, if the bicycle boom, bicycle craze is one of the kind of underlying factors in all this, one of the other factors, which is influenced and influencing the bicycle trade, uh, Craze is, is the rise of kind of women's liberatory movements. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, the rise of feminism and, and, and women's suffrage movements. And does, does this play at all in, in your story? And if it does uh, play, um, I think probably particularly in the backlash, um, whether the women themselves considered themselves to be feminists or just competitors or what. So maybe unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah. Well, there's no question that the 1890s was a time of, it was the first wave of feminism. I mean, the, the, um, the, the march toward voting rights for women started, of course, in the 1850s and 60s, but it was, uh, it was hitting a peak in the 1890s and the temperance movement. And so it was definitely a feminist period. Um, the social mores of the time were changing. Um, there were, you know, with the industrial age that more women were working in the working class. So they were, they were earning paychecks. Uh, they weren't 
executives by any means, but they were making paychecks. And so it was definitely a time of social upheaval in that regard. Um, and it was also the beginnings of physical education for women in school. Um, the, the, the bloomers of the 1870s and 80s, which was the, you know, like the, the pantaloon kind of things that women wore in order to hike in the woods and be a little bit more athletic or a little bit more, uh, less constrained by the skirts that they really still had to wear. All of this kind of is the background for the emergence of this sport. And the there's no question that this was a time of the elite culture trying to maintain the status quo, which was keeping women in their place, keeping women on the pedestal, keeping them objects of beauty and reverence physically as opposed to, um, you know, having them exert their physicality or let alone make money. I mean, they were making a lot of money too. So that was threatening. So lots of, lots of things were threatening about this. And so there was an inevitable kind of cultural backlash against these women. I don't think it phased them too much. You know, I don't see a lot of that because I think they were kind of interested in their, what they were doing and they were interested in their own little world. Um, But, um, there are a couple of examples that I cite in the book of uh, newspaper articles where they would either uh, show how these women had become ugly through their exertions. Um, you know, the irony is they would often demonstrate it with an etching that an artist drew. So it wasn't much of a proof, but they would show before and after pictures, basically, of how the women started off looking quite presentable and then ended up looking haggard and, and gross and athletic. Um, and then also um, uh, they would have uh, doctors or public figures testify to the fact that the women were endangering their bodies. There was a lot of fear that uh, women that rode a bicycle like that would never be able to bear children. Um, they thought that it, kind of like uh, our president now, Donald Trump, believes that there's a certain amount of energy in the human body and you don't want to use it up. And um, I think the there was a, that's kind of a 19th century notion, I guess. And so these, they thought, you know, if you exert yourself too much in your twenties, you're not going to be able to live long. You know, you'll, you'll use up your, your life. And so, you know, there are lots of these kinds of uh, 19th century ideas and um, probably the most famous of the articles that was represented that backlash was in St. Louis in 1897, when the St. Louis newspaper hired an artist to visit Tilly Anderson's hotel room and do a very detailed etching of her uh, naked leg, so her muscular right leg. And the point of the article really was to show, and they had a doctor come in and describe the leg in detail, all the muscles, all the veins, all the arteries that showed. And the the ultimate point of the article was just to show that um, if you are... If you are lucky enough as a man of that period to see a woman's leg, uh, this is not the kind of leg you want to see because it's muscular and athletic as opposed to the kind of ideal leg, which would be like a porcelain, um, perfectly symmetrical, uh, you know, I don't know how to describe it other than that. but um, Soft and, and, and soft. supple, you know. <laughs> and the, the doctor who did the describing did have to allow the fact that 
I think he said from an anatomical point of view, it's, it's beautiful. It's perfect. Um, if you were going to put it in an anatomy book and demonstrate what a, how the muscles work together, this is the leg to see. But, um, in terms of, uh, going out on a Saturday night, uh, it would not be the leg to see. But, um, so yeah. again, there was an attempt to kind of masculinize these women. They, uh, other reporters describe their, their skin as coarse or their face as tanned because they did ride outside a lot. So, I mean, we are so far beyond that now that um, it's really hard to imagine, uh, although I'm, I'm 58 years old. So I can I remember when uh, uh, athletes from the 70s and 80s um, were similarly criticized. You know, they were like Martina Navratilova. She was viewed as too manly, too masculine, too muscular um, to be. Um, accepted by a larger society, but um, uh, these women were facing that too. But I think now with, um, you know, Serena Williams and other women like her, I think we're, we're finally getting past that, but it's taken a, a long time. So eventually, I mean, I don't want to spoil it for our readers, but the, this, this women's um, racing cycle racing um, league, in the way collapses, it doesn't collapse um, in the same way that maybe some other women's sports does. I, I, I thought when I first started reading that it was going to be the League of American Wheelmen when they try to force all these track boycotts, because that's of course what happens to women's um, soccer, women's football in the in England, for example. They get basically forced out of all the stadiums and without anywhere to compete, they yeah. fold up. But that's not what happens here. They actually laugh off the League of American Wheelmen. That's not a problem. So what actually does cause this collapse? Why does it stop um, being such a successful product? Yeah, I think it's essentially what I was describing before, which was the, the fading of the bicycle boom and the loss of the support of the manufacturers so that the racing itself started to become less um, profitable. and then. The fact that in cities like Cleveland, for example, and Columbus and Chicago and, and Minneapolis, they were now hitting their fifth or sixth year of regular racing. And so they would race two or three times a year in Cleveland, say. And so the sport became a little bit familiar. Um, it could also be the fact that Tilly Anderson won almost all the races, that people started to get a little tired of it. Um, there was a there were a lot of charges of the races being fixed, but it's really hard to figure how they could be fixed if they have the same person winning all the time. <laughs> it seems like that's not the way you would set it up. Um, and Tilly, and of course, I know Tilly's grandniece and and her. Tilly, by the way, lived to ninety years old, nineteen sixty five. She died, and so there are plenty of people up in uh, in Chicago and and in Kansas and in Minnesota too who remember Tilly and her whole life, she insisted this was all on the up and up and she tried to win every single race and she won, you know, 90% of them. Um, but anyway, that might've contributed to the demise of the sport. But I think the main thing is just the coming of the automobile and the fact that, um, you know, and I tried to trace a little bit in the book, how, um, somebody introduced a motorcycle, two words as a, as a kind of novelty pacing, uh, bicycle early on in like 1898, 1899. And um, during the 
annual cycling exhibition in Chicago. Um, um, the, the, I can't remember, uh, Colonel Pope, who ran one of the bicycle manufacturers, uh, tried out his new horseless carriage, you know, and so clearly the, the attention of the United States, uh, citizens started to move toward, um, motorized vehicles and, the novelty of being able to go 20 or 25 miles an hour on a bicycle started to get um, overtaken by the novelty of being able to go 30 or 35 miles an hour in an automobile. It was, um, I mean, the end of your book is a bit sad in, in some ways to think about these women who for a few years were at the peak of, of their sport, drawing enormous crowds um, and then often finishing their careers as carnival sideshows and, um, or, or just in Lizzie Blaw's case, dying almost immediately, yeah. it seemed like, yeah. um, so that it, the collapse was really quite, quite sudden. Uh, I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how or why, what the process by which it is forgotten, because it, it does feel like, you know, not only is this something that collapses, but then after the collapse, there's effectively um, a period of, of forgetting, like intent, an intentional period of intentional forgetting, perhaps. It does seem that way. Um, I think there are a number of factors. Uh, one of them, I think, is the fact that this was a local phenomenon in terms of sports coverage. So the news of these women were buried in local newspaper archives for decades and decades, and so it took somebody to come along and try to dig those things out. And for, as you know, for many Thank years, you, by the way. <laughs> for many years in the 20th century, that was quite a job. And now it's much easier with the internet, and all sorts of digital archives. Um, but so that's part of it. I think part of it is that sports historians and cycling historians have for the most part been men. And for the most part, they've been focusing on the men's sport. And I was, uh, you know, disappointed to see, uh, several uh, prominent writers of bicycling history uh, give almost no attention whatsoever to women's racing until the 1980s. Um, so it it just it, it just seemed not to occur to people to dig back and and try to tell the story of those early racers. Um, I think part of it is that because of the coming of the automobile, bicycle racing generally. Um, kind of suffered for the in the early 1900s and it really in the United States anyway it enjoyed a renaissance in the 20s and 30s with uh, the new six-day races of the 1920s and 30s very popular in Madison Square Garden um, but at that time no women's races and it wasn't there was no official women's race in the United States really until the 1950s um, it was a little bit more popular in Europe but uh, even there the history has not yet been written in fact I'm I'm in touch with a couple of people in Europe and I'm really urging them to, to write that book about the 1890s women bicycle racers there. Um, so I, I don't know. It's a, it's shocking in a way that um, something that was so popular has been ignored or suppressed or whatever it's been. Um, I don't blame anybody because I think it, it, it was very, you know, if it's not written about, nobody knows about it. And if nobody knows about it, they don't write about it. So it's just kind of a catch-22. And um, Hopefully now we've broken through. Yeah, you, you, you maybe blame the League of American Wheelmen a little bit <laughs> for not keeping their records, for refusing to keep women's records. 
That's true. And, you know, one they, of the biggest promoters of bicycle racing at that time, women's bicycle racing, was H.O. Messier, who created the, the women's sport in some ways. And he ended up writing the first book of sports statistics in 1903. And he did not include women's racing. <laughs> so so he, he was the first person to do it, I guess. That's, that, I wish that didn't sound so familiar. Well, I mean, we'll have to chat later because uh, I, would, I would be interested in, in thinking a little bit about some of these connections between the USA and France. Um, but the last question we always ask on our new books network is, uh, what do we have to look forward to next? Do you have any upcoming sports uh, studies projects that we can look forward to hearing about? Well, I'm not sure. Um, my short project is something that I really want to do, which is one of the racers from Cleveland. Her name was Bertha Wagner, who got almost no mention in the book, and you probably don't even remember her, um, was just a, a figure that really intrigued me. And, um, you know, briefly, I'll just say that she ended up being a, um, a writer and an editor for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, which is the big newspaper in <laughs> Cleveland. And um, in ni- 19... 32, she published a feature article about the 1890s women bicycle racers under her married name, Bertha Schaefer. And she never even admits that it's her, but I know from the archeolo- or the uh, genealogical records that it was her. Um, and so she's just a fascinating figure to me. And I really want to go to Cleveland and try to dig up more information about her. And I think it's worth an article or something. But, um, but if I were to do a book project, and I don't know if I will, but if I were to do one, I think I would really like to focus on that, that gentleman I just mentioned, H.O. Messier and his um, kind of trainer partner, uh, Ed Moulton, who ended up, uh, as an athletic trainer at Stanford University for many decades after his, uh, foray in women's racing. Um, I think the two of them deserve a lot of credit for the sport and the, and the, the creation of women's bicycle racing in the 1890s. And they both turned out to have fascinating careers after that. Uh, H.O. Messier made these encyclopedias of sports histories and, um, uh, Ed Moulton ended up being an athletic, one of the early athletic trainers, really in college sports. So I'd kind of like to look into them. Well, we'll be um, looking forward to learning more about it if you do. If you do go into those uh, projects, and um, I, I think you should, I think you should write this article. Cleveland is a great place to visit. I say, as a person from Cleveland, <laughs> um, it's definitely, definitely worth the trip. Thank you very much, uh, Roger, for joining us here. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. We've been speaking with Roger Gillis, the director of the Honors College and a writing professor at Grand Valley State University. You've been listening to the New Books and Sports channel on the New Books Network. I'm Keith Rathbone and Corey Uni. Thank you very much for joining us. <laughs>